everybody, it's Mike. Once again, our presenting sponsor is Sam Adams. In addition to their Restaurant Strong Fund, which I've mentioned the past few weeks that supports restaurant workers affected by the COVID-19 closures, I wanted to applaud something they're doing right now, which is that they joined the hashtag Stop Hate for Profit campaign, and they've paused their advertising on Facebook and Instagram through July. Once again, you can support the Restaurant Strong Fund by donating at samueladams.com. And now the show. Hey everybody, it's Mike Birbiglia. We are back! We are back with another episode! <laughs> I couldn't be more excited. My voice gets higher and higher. Another episode of Working It Out. Um, when I came up with the idea for this podcast, I thought, I'm just going to ask some of my dream people if they'll come on. And last week we had Hannah Gadsby. This week we have David Sedaris. So, we're going to keep asking. I've been a fan of uh, David Sedaris for, you know... Over 20 years, I recommend all of his books. He's the funniest person. He needs no introduction. This is our chat. You said this thing to me over email the other day, and, the first, and, I, and it made me laugh so hard. I thought, you must be, you must be putting that in something in, in, a, in a book. Um, because you and I both count our steps on our Fitbit, but... But you're much better than I am. Like a few years ago, we went for coffee and I, you said, how many is the most steps you've ever done? And I said, I, in a day, I go, I don't know, 25,000? And you go, I've done 90,000. And I said, in a day? You said, oh, yeah, yeah, in a day. <laughs> and, uh, and then you said something over email the other day, which is that about, um, I said, do you still get your steps in? Because that's what I was thinking about with you in New York City. Like, how would you possibly get your steps in? And you, you said that you walk around after hours. Well, after hours is easier because you don't have to wear a mask if no. you're out at, after midnight because you're not running into anybody. And, I mean, it used to be in New York that one out of every 500 people you passed was crazy, but now it's one out of every two, especially when it's <laughs> yes. after dark like that. But yes. I just spent... Two weeks in North Carolina, on the coast of North Carolina, where none of this ever happened. Nobody wow. had a mask on, not at the grocery store. And I went to Dairy Queen, and there was some lip service to social distancing, but then they would yeah. say, next, and then you go to the counter, and you're right up against the other person who's ordering. And I would see articles in the New York Times, and I would think, why are they still talking about that? Isn't that over? Oh, my gosh. And then I returned yesterday and then just got right back into it. You know, with a checklist wow. before I left the apartment. You know, do I have my mask? Do I have my hand sanitizer? But in North Carolina, I could walk day and night. The problem was the heat and humidity. And then it rained a couple of times. And so my feet got wet. And now my feet are destroyed. It's like I'm walking on <laughs> hot coals. But I still have to, you know, I have a Fitbit friend who I'm... <laughs> deeply competitive with. And so <laughs> I can't not. So last night after midnight, I walked six hours. Oh my gosh. So I could wake up with those six. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I meant I walked six miles. Uh, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> but hobbling the entire time. Oh my gosh. So what are your, wait, what do your feet look like? Like, what's your deal? It's everything is blistered that can be blistered. And then the balls of my feet feel like they have metal plates in them, and that's from walking on sand. 
Huge mistake to walk on sand. Oh my gosh. Huge mistake. You, you said this thing over email, which is that you were in Times Square at 1.30 in the morning and there was a guy pushing himself along barefooted in a wheelchair and he shouted, look at that fucking clown. You clown, fucking clown. And you said, I thought he was talking about me and I followed his eyes and saw an actual clown with turquoise hair and a red nose. It was an actual clown. <laughs> 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 it's really interesting to go to Times Square like at two o'clock in the morning now. Because it's as yeah. late as it would, it's like daylight. That's how many lights are there. But it's just, yeah. you know, it's just kind of street people who are out. And they'll cross it, they'll, they'll run over to you now from the other side of the avenue to ask you for money. You know, because wow. they've been there all along asking for money and usually there are crowds and now there's nobody. Right, there's fewer customers. And you, uh, I think when I met you, it was at this American Life Live event where you were dressed as a clown. I loved wearing that clown makeup. No kidding, really? Mm, it's fantastic, yeah. And I just felt so great. Do you like the anonymity of it? Uh, I just thought, you know, it's my face, but it's a completely different face. And it's not horrible. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> and I well, love clowns it, clothes, too. Oh, you do? Yeah, when yeah, I look at clowns, this, I'm like, I don't, what's, why are people laughing? I right. Think, you know, the big collar and the, and the, you know, the one piece kind of a, like a puffy jumpsuit with diamonds on it and the long shoes. And I'd see, I see nothing there to criticize. It is an incognito move also, because like, I remember... I was talking backstage with, uh, with you at the This American Life Live event, and you were full clown, and, and my wife, Jen, was there, and, and she didn't know it was you. And, and, uh, and then we walked away, and she goes, was, was that clown a friend of yours? And I go, that's no clown, that's David Sedaris. She said, what? <laughs> that's a great title, that's no clown, that's David Sedaris. I like that. <laughs> You and I are both live performers. You have actually sort of a reverse process to typical authors. Like, I feel like most authors, they they write the book and they go tour the book, then they read pieces of the book. But when you go tour, you're touring what you're workshopping for the next book. Yes. Because I remember when my first book came out, uh, a lot of those, those uh, stories and essays were written maybe when I was a student, um, you know, somewhere homework. One was, a couple of them had been read on stage, but back then I would get the opportunity to read. I was living in Chicago and I would always write something brand new for every reading. So basically I would just read it one time. And whereas now I might read something 40 times before it's published, but then I would just read something one time and then I would move on to the next piece. And when the book came out and I read it out loud, uh, you know, on a book tour, and I thought, damn, I wish that I'd had the chance. I would have known to cut, you know, these two yes, paragraphs. of course. And I, of and course, because you, you can see it in people's faces almost, or you can hear it in their responses. Yeah. You can just feel, you just hear yourself saying words that aren't necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And you I feel mean, that's my, the audience skimming. 
That's exactly right. That's and that's my exact process. Except you do this. You take it a step further, which I really admire. Which is you literally. I've seen. I saw you at Carnegie Hall, literally striking things out in real time on the page. Well, because I always hope it's not too distracting. But what better time to do it? The extraordinary thing that you do that I I, I feel like I I don't have the endurance for is you talk to your audience members afterwards and you, you know, they tell you jokes and you, you know, you have these long, what by all accounts, cause you and I play a lot of venues. People tell me that you'll sometimes be there for three hours afterwards. My record is 10 and a half hours. <laughs> oh my gosh. I had 10 and a half. That was my record. And then I had 10 and a half hours, <laughs> 10 and a half. And then I had several 10 hours but those were usually on book tours, you know, where sure. it just takes longer. In a theater, probably my record is like six hours. <laughs> and we're going to do a thing called the slow round where we ask like a series of, of prompts about things. One of the prompts is like, what do people underestimate about you? And I feel like with you, it's like, it's, it would be energy. Like that's an extraordinary amount of, of sustained energy. Well, but I feel like the rest of it doesn't require much energy. You know, I mean, I, you know, if I'm doing a theater tour, then I get on stage and I'm on stage for an hour and a half and I'm reading. I'm not reciting things yeah. that I've memorized. And so on a scale of one to ten energy-wise, that's maybe a two. No kidding. You know, if a signing goes on for ten hours, there comes a point and I feel like, wow, this is pretty long. But otherwise, I don't. I look at my watch and I think, "Wow, really? That much time has passed." It, yeah. I enjoy it. I, it's a perfect sort of way to talk to people, especially when you're a bit socially awkward. Like if I had to go to a party, it would be torture. But if I'm seated at a table and somebody comes and they hand me a book, the encounter ends generally when I hand the book back. You know, if I sat there and I said nothing. Then they, then the person who would hand me their book and said, oh, I first read your book and so on, and I really liked your last book. And then they're going to walk away and think, damn it, why did I say that? But yeah. plus, I've just been on stage for an hour and a half. Enough about me. <laughs> you know, and so it's time to talk about them. And I don't, I, people tell me fascinating things. You know, but yeah. something happened recently and I, uh, this guy told me a story on stage uh, at a book signing, right? And it was about something he'd shoved up his ass. And <laughs> I mentioned it on stage a week later, and it got back yeah. to him. I didn't name him. There was nothing that would have let people in the audience know who it was. And yeah. he was furious, and he said, how dare you? You have no right to repeat stories that people tell you. Oh. And I thought... Well, you know, I was on stage that night and I read this long essay that was about things people tell me on mm. book tours. So you right. can't say you weren't forewarned. And yeah. I'm actually not going to feel bad about that at all. I didn't steal your identity. I didn't expose you. Yes, the audience laughed, but the audience laughed because you shoved something up your ass. You know, I mean, and, and a lot of people find that funny. 
when you you're know, doing those signing lines, do you take photos also? People must ask, right? Yeah, and I, and I just say, oh, you know, I'd rather not. I'd rather, I'll draw yeah. a picture of the two of us or I'll, <laughs> I just don't, oh. I just don't get the camera thing. Especially I don't get the uh, selfie thing. Can we get a picture of ourselves yeah. together? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know, maybe because I would never ask somebody for that. Yeah. Um, but, and I, and I might have mentioned this, I, I know I mentioned this somewhere before, but I went on the, whatever show Jimmy Fallon is host of. Yeah, yeah, The Tonight Show. And Reese Witherspoon was a uh, guest. And whenever I go on a television show, I always bring my friend Andy's daughter, daughters. Mm-hmm. He has two daughters, and I've known them since they were born. And so they started when they were like six, you know, coming. And, you know, mm-hmm. they give you a, a, a bag of food and gifts, and I always give it to the girls. And I don't, I, I don't want to go on TV without them there with me. And now they're 17 and 18. But at this point, they were maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe like 12 and 13. And Reese Witherspoon came to my dressing room door with they'd given us all up. There was a bowl of nuts in everyone's dressing room and she brought hers to me as if it was a gift that she had brought from home. And she saw the girls like looking at her with big eyes and she said, girls, (laughs) do you think we could get a picture together? And I thought (laughs) that is so classy because they were too well-mannered to ask and she could tell how much it would have meant to them. And then for the rest of my life, I'll think, you know, whenever I hear anything, someone wants to say anything bad about Reese Witherspoon, I'm like, no, yeah. no, no, you don't. You know, you don't. That kindness that she showed the girls was, and, and it was just so, well, I don't know another word. It was just classy. My, uh, I, I saw Amy, my sister Amy last night, and she had just watched that Michael Jordan documentary. Yeah, yeah, I've seen but that But she had one, a yeah. friend who she was at Second City with named Greg Holloman, and he was Michael Jordan's body double for, this was like ages ago, like, I don't know, like in the mid 80s for a commercial, like a Nike commercial. Uh, I don't know if those were the sneakers. He, I don't know anything about sneakers or basketball. And, but he, <laughs> it was like, they were like Greg's hands touching the basketball. And, you know, he was a body double for him. And he said, wow, these are great sneakers. And Michael Jordan said, well, why don't you, why don't you take them, right? And so Greg took the sneakers with him at the end of the shoot. And then they said, oh, no, you don't. You can't take those sneakers. And then he walked <laughs> out and Michael Jordan was in his limousine and he said, hey, where are the sneakers? And Greg said, they took them away. They said, I couldn't have them. And Michael Jordan got out of his limo, went back in there, got the sneakers, <laughs> came out and handed them to Greg. So whatever they say about him being temperamental or him being an asshole sure. or him being, it's like he went out of his way to make sure that Greg had those sneakers. I mean, by the same token, people remember it, really remember it, you know, if you're a dick to them. Sure. And sometimes it takes all you have to be patient with somebody. Let's say if somebody says, we're going to get a selfie, and you say, you know what, actually, I got a better idea. Why don't I do this? No, I want this. No, I want that. No, I want you to do this. (laughs) And you're trying to talk to them in a way that they can hear, but they're just not going to hear you, Right. And then yeah. they leave and they talk about what a dick you are. And it's like, no, I'm not a dick. You're crazy. You know, I tried everything yeah. with you. And I guess I could have done exactly what you wanted me to do. But 
I'm doing this thing that I love doing and you're making me yeah. not love it. And that's not fair yeah. to me. One of the other questions is, um, do you have a memory that's never made it into one of your books that's just on a loop in your head, but it doesn't, it doesn't land anywhere in anything? Yeah, I remember somebody, somebody told me a couple of years ago that they took a writing class and their teacher told them to write about really the most embarrassing, embarrassing thing that ever happened to them. And with a lot of people, that might be, oh, I farted in class or something like that. But that's sort of uh, kind of a tame version of embarrassing. Like, sure, if you're sure. talking about really embarrassing, you know, like sort of, you know, sitting in the backseat of a car when you're 19 with some friends driving back from, uh, you know, to Kent, Ohio from New York City, and it seems like everyone's asleep except the guy who's driving, and you kind of jerk off through your pants. And <laughs> I just remembered doing that. <laughs> that is really bad. I mean, I didn't pull anything out of my pants. I get frotage, is that what it's called? You're just kind of rubbing yourself. But that's not even the thing I was thinking of. But you know what I mean? Like most people would... I think they would say, oh, I farted in third grade and, and, and not really talk about what it really was that they did that was terribly shameful. And there's something I did and I always, I thought I can't possibly write about that. There is no way on earth I can write about that. But then it's always the things that are most embarrassing that most people can relate to. And I know I feel that way too. If, I mean, in comedy, I feel like, like with what you do, there are moments when I think, oh my God, we're the same. Because you made me think of something that I did that I thought it was just me. Do you have a skill that no one knows about? Uh, yeah, guessing people's ages. It's like, it's my superpower. Oh, yeah. It's my superpower. No kidding. If I meet somebody and I say, are you 58? Then they get a look on their face and they're shocked. Because most people round up. You know? Yes. Um, and I just kind of look at somebody and kind of take them all in. And then I'll say, do you like being 47? <laughs> and, and they act like I just took their wallet and looked at their ID. <laughs> but it took a long time to hone that. And I honed it because while signing books. Because I would look sure. at somebody and I would think, I bet that person's... 23 and I would say how old are you and they'd say 23 so and then I learned over time you know over a certain age you can't do it because nobody wants to be and then often you'll get people and everyone thinks you know everybody thinks that I'm you know that I'm only 42 and it's like well you're you're 51 you know (laughs) (laughs) and I know that but I don't want to hurt and and people have been hurt before and I said I'm sorry I and I could see how people would think you were 41 but I'm a professional and that, you know I, that's so funny because I I literally one of the new jokes I'm working on for my show is uh is a joke where I say I'm I'm 41 but I'm a hard 41 I'm a 41 <laughs> where people say I thought you were 51 and I'm like oh thanks for adding a, a decade of <laughs> decay and no wisdom to my life that's oh, very generous 41. of you are you really 41? 41, yeah. Huh. Is that what, what was going to be your guess? 
Well, it's a little bit different because you're not in front of me right now. Yeah. You know, it doesn't Were work gonna- like if I look at a picture of somebody or if I see someone on television. That'd be right in front of me and I have to feel it. And sometimes I think I'm going to say that this person is 38 and then I open my mouth and instead uh, 39 comes out and I was right. It's the same thing when I meet somebody and I say, uh, are you from Illinois? Oh, what part of Wisconsin did you grow up in? Yeah, yeah. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, re, I'm, I'm right about that a lot of the time. And that was frustrating about moving to England because I had to start over. Yeah, it's, um, I talk a lot about age in my new show that I'm developing right now. It's, um, the new show is tentatively titled, barring a legal, a legal <laughs> dispute or objection, is called the YMCA Pool. Because, because I, I, as a kid, I went to the YMCA Pool and I sort of vowed I would never return. And then here I am at age 41, back at the YMCA pool, kind of doctor's orders, swimming. And I actually have a, I have a lot of jokes about age. And I say, uh, I'm 41. I, I go, I'm ha- exactly halfway through my life. Not technically. No, not everyone dies at 82, but no one's ever like 80 through 100. Those are the years. <laughs> They're more like, I was 83. I reached for a grape and I never walked again. I like a YMCA pool. <laughs> I do too. I do too. I've, you know, I learned to like it again. When I started swimming when I turned 50 and then I would go on tour and I would see, look for the YMCA. I like the adventure of finding a YMCA and then getting into the YMCA because they wouldn't always sell day passes. Sure. And then, because the swimming part is so boring. Yes, yes. The swimming is boring and repetitive, yeah. The thing about swimming, to me, is that there's so much anxiety attached to it, right? Yes. Like, are there going to be a lot of people there? Am I going to have to share a lane? And the pool I would go to in London, you know, they want you to swim up in one direction and swim back in another direction, like, like clockwise, right? But then you get yeah. there and there's one other person in the lane and they say, let's both just take our own lane. But that's not fair yeah. to a third person who comes along. Right. That's right. And and so I say, well, no, I don't really think that's fair to some. And then you're you're in it with somebody, you know, then you're having a disagreement with a stranger. I hate conflict. It has the YM, the the pool, you know, YMCA pool. It has a lot of conflict. And also it in a city setting, it is uh, it's an equalizer. Like I saw a well-known actor in the YMCA pool in Brooklyn and he was in the lane next to me and he crashed into a lady who was also in the lane. It was a head to head crash. And she, yeah, she didn't know who he was. I knew who he was. She yelled at him. (laughs) She was like, what are you doing in my side of the lane? And he goes, I didn't know. I didn't, you know, and it was, it's very awkward. There's a lot of conflict in that pool. At the pool that I would go to in London, I cannot tell you how many times the lifeguard would blow his whistle because somebody had shit in the pool. <laughs> what? And you, you know how you go Is to that the, true? Yeah. And you know how you go to the pool and then there's a woman with a baby in the pool? <laughs> yeah. How is a baby not going to shit in the pool? <laughs> it doesn't know. Yes. It doesn't know not to. I mean, it's, I'm not yeah. cleaning the baby, but it doesn't, it's not toilet trained. You, and you brought it into a huge pool? Yeah. 
I have a joke in the new show where I go, I, I walked to my, my local YMCA pool. I didn't need directions. I just followed that famous chlorine smell. I said, I don't know what the hell kind of heinous crime they are covering up at the Y, but something has gone down. Like, I don't know if there was a mob hit in the middle of the night. They're like, do we dig a ditch or we bring a body down to the YMCA pool? We drop him in the deep end. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's and then like because there is that much chlorine, it's outrageous it, because of the exact thing you're saying. Because people shit in the pool, okay? babies shit in the pool. You know, you find the uh, you go to the deep end of a YMCA pool, and you you'll find like a a paper thin little disc, and you realize, oh, that was a nickel yesterday. You know, like somebody <laughs> a nickel into the pool. And you know how when you're staying in like a really shitty hotel and you can smell the pool when you check oh, in? Yeah. The, oh, yeah. Oh, the moment you check in. Yeah. I know it very well. But Hugh and I, we just got a pool at our house in England, our own oh, pool. Oh, wow. And it's a lap pool. And it's the first time that I've been able, there's no anxiety involved. Yeah. And so you're just back to the boredom because, my God, is it boring to swim laps. Yeah. Are you a good swimmer? No. No. Hugh is. Hugh, it's beautiful to watch him swim. And he can swim for a mile without stopping. But because I smoked for so long, I I splash awkwardly to from one end to the other. And then I grab onto the edge and I pant for a little while. <laughs> and then I turn yeah, back. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. When, you know, when Hugh and I came back to New York, I looked for a fitness center, you know, to join and there are any number of them, you know, like... Uh, a New York uh, Sports Club or Equinox yeah, yeah. or whatever. But I don't want to be next to that person. Do you know what I mean? Who has <laughs> like a, You know, who has an amazing body and all of that. Yeah, and yeah, so, sure. And so that's the... That, you're right. That is the good thing about the Y because there are older people there and there are like, you know, kind of fat kids who have been forced to go there. Sure. Just, just a better feeling, I think. I have this flash memory always of, uh, not always, I sometimes have this memory flashback to childhood of going to the YMCA with my mom. Because when I was, I was like probably five years old, she took me into the women's locker room and I had never seen a vagina. And then I saw 100 vaginas. And then when I was six, she sent me to the men's locker room. And, and the only thing more shocking than 100 vaginas is 100 penises at eye level. And uh, that was something I think about when I go now as a grown-up to YMCA is like the locker room shower is very exposed. Yeah. I mean, there's no real privacy there. Um, I met somebody at a book signing once, and he saw his mother naked by accident when he was young. And he had a number of brothers, and he saw that his mother didn't have a penis, and he panicked for years because he didn't oh know gosh. there even were vaginas. And she thought she had lost her penis somewhere. Oh, my God. But that must be interesting. I mean, for you, you know, who's a public person who people recognize at a, uh, like a YMCA dressing room, you have to be afraid that someone's going to take your picture when you're naked. I it's it's definitely crossed my mind. Like I yeah, I've, I've thought like when I'm in the shower, like I hope I don't go around. Go, I hope I don't go home and fish around on YouTube and go, oh no, you know. <laughs> well, I was in me. Switzerland. 
I was in Switzerland and I met a woman and I said, um, I turned, she has two daughters and I said, uh, do they take showers after gym class? And she said, that is <laughs> I was in Sweden. I said, do they take showers after gym class? And she said, oh my God, why would you ask that question? She said, how did you know? So apparently kids don't anymore because they're too afraid that someone's oh. going to take their nude photo with a phone. Oh gosh, In wow. the locker room after gym and post. Wow. Yeah. Oh dear. Um, you know, that's one thing I hate is a sneak with a phone. Yes, I do too. You know, when you see somebody taking somebody's picture without them knowing it, and it's the look on their face while they're doing it, and just the thought that they have a right to do it. Just, uh, uh, and sometimes there are people that you know and you like, yes. and you think, oh my God, you're that person? Yeah, my wife and I always talk about that with like, with like our 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 journals or our diaries. You know, it's like, if if we if there's ever a betrayal of trust of like me reading her jur- private journal or reading her emails or something like that or her reading my journal like that's that's more of a deal breaker than anything. I got an email from a friend the other day and he was uh, every now and then he'll send me things that he wrote in his diary like twenty or thirty years ago and it's always really interesting to me uh, and he's a good writer. But he had sent me something from like 20 or 30 years ago that his girlfriend at the time read his diary and he had said, you know, that he, he'd criticized her looks or he had said that she was dull or something. And he said, to this day, I feel so horrible about what, I've, what I'd written. And I said, you don't have to, I'm sorry, but you don't have to feel bad about that. She read your diary on your computer, yeah. knowingly read your diary on your computer and if she was hurt, that's her problem because that's what you get for reading somebody's diary. And you're allowed to think, wow, that person looks 10 years older than the last time I saw them. You're allowed to think that. Uh, why would yeah. you be allowed to write it in your diary? You know, I always say to Hugh, my boyfriend, when I die, you're gonna, if you read my diary, you're going to find something bad about yourself. Keep reading. Because the next day, <laughs> the next day you're going to hear something really good about yourself. Oh, that's so sweet. I just got back from North Carolina. And so I was trying, usually when I go to the beach house, I try to write an essay about the beach house. Like what went on at the beach? What's the story of the beach house now? Sure. Because there's always a story there. But it was just Hugh and I. And then my sister Gretchen came down. But anyway, when I was there, it was just the story seemed to be nature. And I kept finding all of these turtles. So I kind of found a baby snapping turtle kind of <laughs> yes. marching furiously toward the grocery store. Like it was going to fire everybody who worked there. And it was just, <laughs> and you know how they always look so angry too. And so I brought it to the creek to let it go. And there was a guy, a, a young woman with one leg and a guy there um, standing there. And and he turned the turtle upside down and he said, see, it's a female. You can tell by the shape of the shell right there. And so I, I reluctantly let it go. But I was thinking about all the kids who I know. You don't want to give it to like a five-year-old, but like a 12-year-old <laughs> would sure. be a good custodian for a snapping turtle. Because, they, you know, they can bite <laughs> your finger off. But I thought, <laughs> what if I kept the snap, snapping turtle, I kept thinking, what would I name it? What would I name it? Mary Catherine, don't you think? 
<laughs> sure, that's a good snapping turtle name. Such a good name for a snap. It would just change your attitude towards it completely if you named it Mary Catherine. <laughs> so it's so funny because you said this thing, and I, I recommend it to a lot of people that you did a, a master class. Um, we talk about writing, and you said this thing in the master class. I think it's so simple, but it's true as a recommendation for writers, which is like stories aren't happening in your life on your phone or on apps or on whatever. They're just around you. They're just observations. Like the snapping turtle is like a perfect example of that. But it was crazy. The next day I found a baby painted turtle. Oh, crazy. wow. Yeah. Um, and then I saw a lot of turtles that had been hit by cars. So did you, you know, say paint? Do you say painted? I think that's what you call it. It's it's like a it's a water turtle. Oh, okay. And it's I want to say it's a painted turtle. Maybe, and they live in harmony with snapping turtles, and they don't get as big as snapping turtles, but they get pretty big. And that was another case where I thought, okay, I picked it up because it was on the sidewalk and it was going to get hit by a car. You know, it was headed toward the toward the road, and so I took it to let it go, but I kept hoping I would find a child along the way and I could say, look, I found this. Would you care to take it? <laughs> and I did find a child. And his, and I said, look, I just found this painted turtle. I was wondering what to do with it. And his mother looked at me like I was wearing a prison uniform. <laughs> and if I had a kid, I, I think I would reserve that. Yeah, yeah, sure. If, you know, for when the man said, uh, do you know what a grown man's dick tastes like? I would save it <laughs> for that. But if he's trying to give your son a turtle, yeah. you know, and you're right there. I wasn't trying to lure a kid. You know, I didn't go up to a child alone. I can't stand yeah. that, you know? Also, I was just curious, is your bladder, is your bladder okay now? Yeah, I go for the cystoscopy every year or so, and uh, and it is. I mean, nobody knows it could come back. You know, the cancer could come back at any at any point. But uh, if people don't know this who are listening, I had can- a bladder tumor at nineteen, and I go for regular visits to the urologist. And David had a eventful uh, visit to the urologist recently as well. But yeah, it was, that was just this fluky thing. It's so funny. I was talking to my friend uh, Seth Barish today about that because I was thinking about how when I grew up, I grew up be near n- next to a cemetery that was on one side of me. My my whole new show is about a, my preoccupation with sort of death and hitting this age where I'm thinking about middle age and natural causes. And I I said I grew up next to a cemetery, and on the other side of me, down the road was was the Worcester Foundation where they had a lot of sort of chemicals and testing. It's actually where they developed the, the, the birth control pill. And, and there was a really high incidence of cancer in my neighborhood. And so when I, when I, uh, I developed a bladder tumor when I was 19, the doctor said, you know, were, there, were you around uh, toxic paint or chemicals? And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, I was around this place with chemicals and I don't know. But, you know, who's to say? But that's because I went to the worst doctor really imaginable. I really did. This guy was just worthless, you know, especially because they did the cystoscopy and I had to wait months for the results, you know. 
Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, wow. and I kept contacting his office. You know, he was in England and kept trying to contact him and no answer, no answer, no answer. But, uh, and I had a bladder, a urinary tract infection and I went to him and he said, oh, you, you have cancer. He said, you have um, prostate cancer or you have bladder cancer. He led with that, with no- Oh my gosh. No evidence whatsoever. Wow. But, uh, you know, for years and years and years, I worked with chemical stripper, you know, stripping oh. woodwork on furniture. Sure. And I never wore a mask. And so I've oh, always gosh. been waiting for that to come back and get me. Because my plan was to make, if I thought, okay, if I have cancer, there must be a way to make a new bladder out of one of those goatskin sacks that people used to, <laughs> used to buy when they would go to Greece in the summer. <laughs> And I'm just yeah, going to make yeah, my sure. own out of a goatskin sack. And they're going to say, oh, my God, this works perfectly. Why did no one think of this? You're a medical genius. Why did no one think of this before? Do you, what is your health currently? Uh, you know, my, my feet are a mess. But, I mean, other than that, I, I mean, I'm not on any medication. I don't, gee, I don't, I don't, I don't have anything. I don't. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any chronic, you know, uh, condition or I went for a physical and everything was fine. Uh, and I didn't think anything of that until I had to go to the doctor for something. And he said, oh, come on, really? You're not on any medication? <laughs> That's when, like, age-wise, <laughs> age-wise, it's like I'm at the point now where I go to the airport and I go through security and they say, is there any reason why you can't go through the medical detector? And they yell at me. <laughs> oh my gosh, is that funny? That's what happens when you, when you hit 60. They start doing yeah. that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, is that funny? Well, do you have yeah. hair on your back? Do I have what? Have hair on your back? I have, let's see, on my lower back, but not really in my mid-back. Okay, all right, that's good. You can still swim then. <laughs> do you think once you have hair in your back, you can't swim you anymore? You can't swim anymore. Yeah, you can't do it. Because you've seen the werewolf, like, you, do you ever go to the Y and then you see the werewolf, you know, and he's got... Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. But are, do you have hair in your back? Yeah. There was a kid, there was a man at our pool when we were growing up at the country club, and we used to call him the werewolf. And from making fun of him, then now I have hair on my back. And it's just because I made fun of him when I was a kid. That's and if I could, Of course, of course. I had it waxed one time, and it just came back with a vengeance. And I know somebody who, he was like, he was a gorilla, this guy. And he had <laughs> so many treatments to have his hair removed electrolysis. Yeah. And, oh, wow. And he did. And he, it was the most satisfying thing he, he, he ever did. Because he was, like I said, he was a gorilla. And he said, when you have hair on your body like I do, he said, uh, you know, wiping your ass is like a huge production. <laughs> and, it gets, and it gets everywhere. You know? sure. And I hadn't thought of that. I mean, I don't have a hairy ass, you know. I just have it on my back. I had it when when I was in high school. It started coming in in patches on my upper face above the shave line, which I think is sort of an Italian quality. And my friend Jordan, he had it too. And he's also Italian. 
And so we found these wax strips at, that they have at the pharmacy where you can rip <laughs> rip the, the hair off your face. And we would do it to each other. And uh, and we would have like this signal. It would just be like, you want to do you want to do the wax strips? We go, yeah, yeah. Let's do wax strips, and we would do it to each other. It was a very intimate relationship we had. That's a that's a really sort of beautiful. You know, when you it, when you yeah. tell me that the intimacy is really beautiful because it's you're both going through the same thing, and you're helping each other out, and you're young like that. That's really nice. I had written down. A couple things today. I feel like you, you have so much great stuff about your siblings over the years, and so I just jotted down a few memories because I had I have three older siblings, and my sister Gina uh, was the oldest, and there was always conflict in the house growing up be, between her and my parents because she was a terrible student. Like she would in high school she'd get like a report card where it would say like geometry and then it would just say the number 40. But, and it would just sort of be like, out of, out of what? <laughs> and it was out of 100. Um, and it was, that was not for a test. That was the whole semester. And that failing starts at 60. She was 20 points short of failing. If she had tried a little harder, maybe she could have failed. <laughs> and uh, I'm comfortable telling that story because she's, you know, she's, she's yeah, very smart and, and it just, high school wasn't her groove. <laughs> Um, and then the other thing I wrote down about conflict, because I had older sisters, so there was all in, in, in high school, and I was when I was between ages of five and ten, and so I would always see these wild conflicts. And when I was about five, my mom got so angry at Gina and Patty because of their they had clothes all over their floor of their bedroom, and so my mom took the clothes and threw them in the sewer across the street wow. from our house and and uh that she it's you know she snapped she didn't know what you know that seemed like the good the right course of action was to move children's clothing into the Worcester public sewage system um and i can only imagine i wrote that i can only imagine what might have happened when a sanitation worker came across some of those items uh, and, and looked at a dark blouse and thought, that is a huge shit. And, and so they, they enlist, so my sisters enlisted me to help bring their clothes back from the sewer to their bedroom. So it was me, Gina, Patty, carrying clothes from the sewer to the bedroom while my mom carried the same clothes back to the sewer. It was like this weird assembly line of clothing, sewer to bedroom to sewer. And in the midst of this chaos, my, my sister Patty looked in my mother's eyes and said, I hate you. And I've never gotten that out of my head. It's just one of the reasons I never want to have a child for all those years. This idea that you work so hard to raise these children, and when they're 15, they just go, I hate you. I just thought, that is a bad deal. That is like a Ponzi scheme. Do you, but you don't have any brothers, I do. My my older brother Joe. Okay. okay. Uh, was but but he was sort of a 
closer in age. So he was like five years older than me. So we were, we were sort of buddies and I looked up to him and he taught me a lot of things. But then my sister Gina, she was 11, she's 11 years older than me. And so it was almost like she was like a second mother. Like she had, in some ways, like she had me on as her personal assistant in some ways. Like I would, she'd be like, you can do, you can be in charge of laundry. You're very good at laundry. And I'd be like, yes, I am very good at laundry, you know, and I was very proud of it. I'm like, there was that Adam Sandler movie and he played a guy who had three sisters. Yeah, Punch Drunk And I so often don't believe siblings in movies and television shows. Like, I just don't. And it's not that they don't look alike. They talk in a way that, hey, bro, hey, little sis. Like, nobody talks that way. And and I hear the wooden brother-sister dialogue and I hear... If if I w- if you and I were in a movie and I wanted people to think that you were my brother, I would say, "Did Mom call you last week?" That's all. Yes. That's all I would have to do. That's all you need. Instead that's all of you saying, need. "Hey, bro, we've been brothers for as long as I've been alive." <laughs> you know, I remember sharing that, sharing those bunks the whole time we were growing up. If someone were recording, like my sister Amy and I last night, you would know she's my sister. The the other thing was when I was a kid, I remember my my older sisters, when my parents went away, they had like an eighties movie like eighties movie level party house party like a full hundreds of people at the house. My parents didn't know about it. They sent me and my brother. This is my this is my teenage sisters. They had the gall to send me and my brother to our friends' houses for the night. <laughs> that was smart. <laughs> That's smart. And so we left, and in true, this is the most 80s high school movie part of it, <laughs> they, they invited their teachers, and the teachers showed up. Wow. And they had a bartender. I mean, they hired a bartender, and at one point, uh, they, at one point, it's like hundreds of people at our house. At one point, I was at Michael Cavanaugh's house, and we prank called the house, and we, and we said, hey, it's the Shrewsbury Police Department. We're coming over. And that would have been funny, except the Shrewsbury Police Department was on their way over. They came over three or four times, and somehow were convinced that everything was okay by my sister Patty, who was 14 years old. That is, again, that was so smart of them. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're brilliant. They're brilliant. And then, and then, and then so, the, so, if, so the next day, there were tire tracks all over the lawn, and I came home from Michael Cavanaugh's house. My brother Joe came home from Mike Flynn's house, and we, we saw the tire tracks, and we thought, well, the jig is up. They're going to get their, their toast. And my parents are coming home that night, and then in the in true 80s high school movie fashion, it snowed. That's perfect. And it, and and covered, it, covered, the it covered the tracks. And it covered the tracks, and my parents never found out until, until this podcast. <laughs> the thing we've been ending on recently is we, we created a section called Working It Out for Charity. Is there any uh, nonprofit or anything that you that you're familiar with or you've contributed to in the past that you feel like is good doing a good job right now? Um, well, you know, I was looking around for people to give money to recently, and I feel like one of the problems is that you give somebody money 
And then five minutes later, they're like, can we have more money? And you think, yes. I just that's a big part you, of it. That's a big part of it. Yes. I just gave you a lot of money. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, why don't sure. you give us more, but why don't you give it to us every month? Why don't you give us a, <laughs> what, have you talked about your will? Have you thought about your will? And the thing is, oh, wow, if you yeah. give over a certain amount, then it's always going to be that way. But yes. uh, Feed America seems like a pretty good thing. Yes. So yes, I, I gave a them one. a lot of money and then I immediately unsubscribed because I didn't want them. I didn't want to be disappointed when they got back to me saying, give me more money, give me more money. Because again, that, I, I, I want it to be my idea. I'm going to give you the best of all worlds. I'm going to contribute to Feed America and I'm not going to give them your mailing address. Oh, that's fantastic. This is a dream come true. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> this is a dream come true. They, by the way, this is a dream come true talking to you. When I, when I became a fan of your books and, and have read all of your books over the years, I feel like one of the rare lucky things I've had in my career is I've been able to talk to some of my heroes and you're one of my heroes. And so I really appreciate knowing you and I appreciate you uh, being on the podcast today. Oh gosh, Mike, thanks so much. That means so much to me. Working it out, cause it's not done. Working it out, cause there's no Wow, so that was another episode of Working It Out with the great David Sedaris. If you haven't read his books, I would try Me Talk Pretty One Day. That makes me laugh out loud. Uh, Naked, the recent one, is Calypso, and it's great. Everything he's written is really extraordinary. The producers of Working It Out are Peter Salomon and Joseph Berbiglia, consulting producer Seth Barish, sound mix by Kate Belinsky, assistant editor Mabel Lewis. Thanks to my consigliere, Mike Berkowitz, as well as Marissa Hurwitz. Special thanks to Jack Antonoff for our music, and as always, a very special thanks to my wife, J-Hope Stein, Our book, The New One, Painfully True Stories from a Reluctant Dad, is in your local bookstore, curbside. As always, a special thanks to my daughter, Una, who created a radio fort. And once again, our thanks to Sam Adams, who's presenting the Restaurant Strong Fund. Join them today at samueladams.com. And thanks, most of all, to everyone who listened. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. We're working it out.